Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. This is Jenny Wise, joined as always by Sam Stern. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Sam. And we also have with us today Adam Slagle. He's a principal consultant on the Total Economic Impact team at Forrester for B2B marketing professionals. And we also have on the phone Andrew Hewitt, who's an analyst on the infrastructure and operations team here at Forrester. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Glad to be back. Welcome back. And so today we're going to talk about employee experience. We have talked about that before on the podcast. We know that it's important, but we also know that not all companies are doing enough about it or investing enough in it. And so because of that, Sam, Andrew, and Adam recently published a report about what is the ROI of employee experience. And so today's episode, we've pulled together this team to answer the question, How can you make the case to improve employee experience? And what is the ROI of employee experience? And so to get started, we know that the benefits of a good employee experience seem so obvious. So why aren't more companies investing in it? I can certainly take a start at this, and Adam, feel free to jump in as well. But from my perspective, there's really two things that stand out to me. One is that the benefits for investing in the employee experience are pretty difficult to quantify. You're talking about very intangible things like employee satisfaction, employee morale, employee productivity. All those benefits are what we assume we get if we invested in employee experience, but those things are also very difficult to quantify. It's not as if I can go out and say X percent of my employees are feeling better today than they were last week, right? It's Mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to quantify someone's emotions. And the other portion of it too is that those benefits are also usually coming over a long period of time. So in contrast with maybe, you know, you you invest in some specific technology that improves the customer scenario and you immediately start to get better sales or something. With employee experience, typically those benefits are going to occur over at least a three-year period, if not longer. So I think a lot of companies are reticent to start investing in employee experience because they start to say, eh, it's pretty difficult to quantify it and we don't really know when we're going to get the ROI. So those are definitely the two things that stand out as why this is difficult in terms of companies looking to invest on improving experience of their employees. I would add to that many of the improvements in employee experience that companies will see or measure when that happens, and that's a good news story, naturally, inevitably, lots of departments rise up to take at least partial credit for the success. Real estate facilities is going to want to say it's down to the new office design. HR obviously will point to the new benefit they offered. The L&D part of HR will point to the manager training piece that they did. Technology is going to talk about the changes, that the improvements they made to a certain technology system that employees are using. And they're all right to some extent, which is there is a lot of complexity to what makes a good employee experience. There are a lot of different elements that are working in concert when working well. And so to tease out that it was this one investment that led to that return, or it was even these two or three investments that led to that return, not only does it play out over a long time horizon, as Andrew said, but it often is a complicated picture like that, where you do need all those pieces working together and working together well. And so then it's like, okay, we're going to give 10% of credit to this department, 20 to that, and suddenly it's a weaker signal than it might have at first appeared. So not only does it take a long time to see what the benefits are, it's really hard to attribute what caused this benefit. And so what investment was the best investment to make? Yeah. And to isolate any one investment. So if you do this, Mm -hmm. you'll get this benefit. Well, you will if you also do these three or four other things. And now suddenly we're talking about quite a large and well-orchestrated investment that most companies, frankly, hadn't budgeted for, nor they set up to orchestrate it that well. And it's funny because this story is unique to EX in some ways, but this is also what we often hear too when you're trying to make the case for other types of customer experience initiatives. So this isn't something totally unfamiliar for companies, but the types of investment that you'll be making and what the ROI will look like is different when it comes to employee experience specifically. 
Yes, and I'll add one other piece to this, which is I think there's a lot of cynicism about what motivates employees that still is treated as conventional wisdom, that you just have to pay them and dangle carrots in the form of additional incentives in front of them. It's insane that we still believe that when we have so much evidence to the contrary, but we do still believe that. I think a lot of companies struggle to find out what's the right investment, to Sam's point. A lot of folks out there will say, well, we'll just improve the benefits, so we'll give everybody free food and it'll be widely available all the time. And we'll invest in this perks culture to improve the experience. And those types of things aren't really instrumental in terms of improving the employee experiences, as Sam mentioned. So I think a lot of companies are pretty confused about that and it makes it difficult for them to actually want to invest in meaningful ways. And so when you talk about investing in meaningful ways, what does that mean? What are some of those investments? I don't know if this is getting into the methodology that was used to create the ROI of EX. We wanted to look at what investments do you actually need to make to meaningfully move the needle on your employee experience. Mm-hmm. What was said before, this is very important, is that the benefits of employee experience, they are hard to quantify. I think we heard over and over again that they tend to be in some of these areas of soft benefits, like employee satisfaction. And one of the things that I think spurred our interest, or I spurred my interest in this, was that we actually had our data science team look at the relationship between employee satisfaction and retention. And what we found was that with a percentage point increase in employee Employee satisfaction, you had a correlation of a half a point increase in actual retention. And I think a lot of the research we found in even this specific study points to the really high costs of employee attrition and what we saw from improvements in employee experience and the ability to improve retention. With that said, I think when you build these business cases, you need to look at multiple different constituencies. And we actually interestingly spoke to people in CX, we spoke to people in operations, people outside of human resources. And so we tried to look at this pretty broadly and and found even when you look at things like revenue, and brand advocacy, you start to see benefits of EX. And when we looked at the cost side of the equation, there are technology costs, there's programs that you might implement. A lot of people did research with their employees, they got outside counsel so that they're not really hearing from the echo chamber. Andrew, Sam, what else did you capture on the investment side? There were certainly training investments. There are time investments. This is going to take time from employees who be doing work tasks otherwise, or a couple of the other ones. And there definitely were technology investments too. We're going to need a platform to capture this data if we need to have this information, or we're going to improve our upgrade cycle for this system or for this technology that employees use because it's important to their productivity. One of the things that I think is important to mention and that gets lost in a lot of this is you need to understand what investments in employee experience will improve employee experience and which improvements actually lead to better business results. So it's not just that employees are happy because work has such great food or it work is so relaxing or work is so well compensated. It needs to be tangible improvements in the employee experience that employees appreciate that lead to them doing more of the things you want them to do as employees, which is oftentimes getting their work done very efficiently in better quantities, the most important work they do, not just the busy work and delighting your customers and being really collaborative and creative for you. And Adam alluded to this earlier, but being passionate brand advocates for you, both for your products and services, but also for your jobs. Those are the ways where it's much easier to see a direct link between we improve the employee experience and the employees rewarded us by doing these positive things. And that's where I think a model and a use of a model like this, you want to focus on what is our understanding of how we would improve the employee experience at our company very specifically that would lead to our employees doing more of the things we'd like them to do more of. 
That's a great point. And that touched on what Andrew said earlier, too, is that it's not just the perks that you do, that it's cool to walk into the kitchen and to have snacks that are available, even though that would be cool. But it is letting them do their jobs in a way that is easier and more effective and more enjoyable. And I think there was a really great example in the report that you guys have from Macy's about time. Can any of you speak to that? This is one of my favorite examples out there, the crisis of workplace distraction and how there needs to be this better balance of both focus in the workplace and also collaborative connectivity. What Macy's found was that employees were spending so much time in meetings per week, so much so that it was actually impeding their ability to make progress on their most important work. And they actually partnered with Microsoft to implement Microsoft's My Analytics program and started this campaign, Macy's Time is Money. And basically, this software solution is able to track how much time you're spending in meetings versus how much time you're spending focusing on the tasks that are most important to making progress in your daily work. And through this campaign, Macy found that they reduced the average number of meetings by four hours a week while increasing the quality of work time by 10%, giving employees back the most valuable commodity of all, which was just time to work on those things that were most important. I think time and time again, when we talk to organizations out there, when they don't understand how to invest in employee experience, one of the things that helps center them a little bit more is talking about how what really matters from an experience perspective is the ability to make progress every single day towards what's most important for your job. Those types of investments that allow employees to do that, whether it's better technology or reducing mundane work or increasing the ability to focus in the physical workspace, those types of things really pay dividends when it comes to enabling people to make progress every day. That was one of the really great examples that came out of this report and something I use quite frequently in our research. I love that example because it really speaks to also it's not just perks, it's thinking strategically about what you do. And in that case, it could be easy to say not a huge investment to just reduce some of the meetings on the calendar. Hopefully many companies can and will do that. But other things do require more investment. As you mentioned, it can be helpful to have a model to categorize how do you begin to really think about this and map this out so that you can come up with the ROI of what it will be. And so that is what the TEI model is. And I know that the TEI model does have some specific categories. Uh, so Adam, could you walk us through what those are? Definitely. So TEI has been around for about 20 years now, and we use it to quantify and articulate the value proposition of technology investments. We typically do it by looking at four broad categories. So one is the business benefits, both hard and soft benefits. So hard could be you replace technology and you save 15% of your IT budget every year. Soft is things like productivity benefits. We like to be very careful around that because, again, when you're making the business case to the CFO, it's very important to be deliberate in the way that you build that business case. But that kind of falls into the benefits. And then looking at the investments and the cost. So what do you have to actually invest in to get those benefits? So we looked at a number of different cost categories in our economic analysis of ROI, VX. So from just technology costs to people costs, does it taking people out of the daily job to go focus on measuring and meaningfully impacting the employee experience, any types of incentives, and even just business process change and programs and professional services you need to go and get there. And I think we saw that across the life cycle from measuring employee experience on an ongoing basis, and then taking initiatives, both people, process, and technology to go and actually improve employee experience. 
We also looked at all of this through the lens of risk. So when I say the lens of risk, we have this natural tendency to overestimate the benefits we're getting from technology investments. Mm -hmm. We've seen this in, over the last 20 years. So how do you go and adjust for variability you hear across interviewees, but also to make a more meaningful, valid, credible business case? And then we have this tendency to underestimate costs. So we look at the variability across interviewees and see where maybe we might risk adjust upward the cost that you need to go and get value from this. And then I think the last benefit here being flexibility benefits. So by making investments in employee experience today, what are some of the future benefits that you might be able to accrue uh, regardless of whether they're materialized today? So we were really looking at things like, is there less absenteeism? Do people have better morale and willingness to contribute above and beyond their daily job responsibilities and things that are very difficult to measure, but, mm -hmm. but things that we we're looking at very closely in this study. So when you're thinking about this model, you can use it to set some ideas of how to start. This conceptual model that we can be using to identify what are some of the levers that we should pay attention to that maybe we were missing before. And then you can also use it as a proof of concept. So should we even pursue this? Does this make sense based on this model? Or to help prioritize one project over another or maybe pursue both, which is also great. And so one thing that I found interesting in this is this idea of starting with a pilot. So after you use this model and you find maybe something to pursue, you should pilot it, which I thought was interesting because we talk a lot about piloting new products or services, less so about piloting internal new processes or services. I'd be curious as to if there are any examples that you guys found of companies that have piloted these improvements to see if it works. One that really stuck out to us was a large insurance company, and they were having a huge problem with attrition because they had to have these agents come into the office. They were restricted to only work in that office. They weren't allowed to work from home, things of that nature. But they had this time when they actually had to shut down the office because they were doing all this construction. So they used it as an opportunity to pilot a work-from-home program for their call center representatives. And what they found from that pilot group is that they were able to reduce churn by 90% from the initial pilot group. So having that flexibility right up front was a huge win for them. And they were able to really increase their retention rate as a result of piloting a work from home program and then seeing the results and then rolling it out en masse to the rest of the working population. So that was one that really stuck out as a great example of how you can pilot, test, and then roll out for a bigger deployment. I think it's also helpful as a way to represent the uncertainty in the numbers in your forecast, in your business case, in your model by saying, we think this is what it's going to look like. Let's run a pilot to put that, the assumptions in here, the best guesses we've made, the range of estimates we've modeled out. Let's put those to the test with a pilot. And now we have a hypothesis that we're testing, essentially. So we don't have to know that this is going to be the best option, therefore roll out a flexible work policy to all of our call centers. We can use this natural experiment that came up in this example, right, of the mm. closed office to run that pilot to test out the assumption that we think this will actually help with our big attrition problem and see if that bears out. So there you see the dynamic between the model and a pilot working, right? The model points you to this is likely to work. The pilot confirms or disconfirms that initial hypothesis that you developed through the model. And if your numbers are right, you keep moving. If they're not, and I think this is something, again, that we've seen a lot of companies are not great at doing but should be better at doing is go back and revisit some of the assumptions. It's not to point the finger at anyone and say, well, you messed up or you don't know math or you had a bad idea about what would improve the employee experiences. What assumptions did we have in the business case in the model that we now want to revisit given that real results did not turn out the way they did? In this case, the insurer bet that the flexible work would allow them to keep more people longer and it did play out that way. 
But if it hadn't, they might have had other things. Is there some camaraderie that those people are missing in the office? Is there something else that we overlooked there that we want to go back and take a closer look at? I think the other thing was that 90% reduction was obviously a very good metric. The thing that stuck out with me more was that they were able to attract people with literally zero claims experience. Rather than coming in fresh into the business, they had an average of about 12 years of claims experience. So think about the profile of someone that you're actually recruiting in the business. And I think, again, it goes to the way that you go and do this. They had this acute problem. They had to redo their building. And similarly, the comorbid problem was that they had a really high attrition in customer service. It's something that most customer service organizations fight with a lot. And what their experiment and their pilot was, if you created a more flexible work environment, what does that do to your attrition? And they definitely saw the impact on attrition, but even some of that natural attrition, you tended to recruit a more qualified candidate there. And that compounds, you're surrounded by people with more experience that makes the morale of the whole business higher. Which gets into the long-term impact also, exactly. right? Yeah. So there's a shorter-term impact and then there's this long-term impact. And I think the same comes on cost. So if I go and I buy the most expensive technology, but no one knows how to use it, it's not going to ever boot the needle on my organization. So I think it's important to look at these holistically, right? It's technology, it's people, it's process, it's all three. They all have to happen at the same time or you mm -hmm. won't see a meaningful impact. And also the impact will change over time too, right? So year one, there might be more cost as you're training people to use this new software tool. But then come year two, that cost is removed. And so then you begin to become more positive for the ROI as well. Yeah, and I really like that in the model that Adam built here that you would see a lot of that year one picture doesn't look so great. Yeah. You're getting a lot <laughs> of the say. costs realized up front. A lot of the benefits really start to build in the out years and compound in some instances where it's just year after year, the returns from increasing retention build up, as Adam was just alluding to. Suddenly, the more seasoned people are staying, more seasoned people are being attracted, more people are wanted to stay because they're working around these seasoned people. And it feels like it's a really good environment. And that takes some time to build up because they're not seasoned year one when they are staying, but they certainly are years two through five and it's becoming a better and better employment model, but that takes time to build up. Great. And so then my one last question here is that I noticed in this model, it goes from year one to year five, and we begin to see the number shift to be really positive by year five, maybe less so in year one. Is that five-year horizon something that is recommended or does it vary depending on what the company thinks that horizon might look like? I remember when I got into the business case industry, if you will, people were pretty much saying that you have to pay off an investment between 12 and 18 months, and then you're fine. And I think this maybe breaks that paradigm because I think it's very similar to investments in CX. It's ongoing. It's also a moving target in a lot of ways. I think that rising tide really does lift all boats. Their expectations about an ex-employer will grow. So it's something that we like to put it on a time horizon because every CFO out there needs to know when am I going to get my money back. But I think that we show pretty ongoing investments in this area because it's not something that's static. And I'll add to that, we've been tracking CX transformations for a long time, 20 years now. None of these things happen overnight. None of these things are a one or two year transformation that are successful, that go well. Many are a one or two year one because they flame out or they move on to, to the next pet project of somebody in the organization. And so you really do need to let this play out over at least five years to realize all of the benefits and to give yourself enough runway to get to a point where you are going to be or have a potential to be a recognized employee 
experience leader as an organization. So this the model is capturing a lot of those long-term benefits. And those long-term benefits is where companies tell us they want to play because that's when you are starting to get differentiated on the basis of your employee experience or your customer experience, depending on which model we're talking about. Thank you for joining us today, Adam and Andrew and Sam. And we will put a link to this report and other relevant reports into the show notes. And see you next week. Bye for now. Thanks to our colleagues, Amanda Chen, for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.